Welcome to Radio Curious, interviews with those we wonder about. I'm Barry Vogel. Stockton, California, in the center of California's Great Central Valley, has been called the most diverse community in the world. Fourteen distinct and primary languages are spoken in the Stockton area elementary schools. This enormous cultural diversity has, in the past, resulted in automatic rifle fire at a Stockton elementary school. Now, Stockton is a model and a center for conflict resolution and mediation programs in the schools and in the general community. These programs have reduced school suspension for violence to almost zero. The fundamental problem and the area of greatest success is the development of communication skills within and among many cultural groups that live in the Stockton area. Our guest this week is Scott Spears, a young man who grew up here in Ukiah. Now, while Scott is attending law school in Sacramento, he works at the Stockton Mediation Center as a trainer and program developer in the schools and as a mediator in the Stockton community. Scott Spears, welcome to Radio Curious. Hey Barry, thanks for having me. Scott, can you tell us a little bit about the tremendous cultural diversity in the Stockton area? Yeah, there's an enormous amount of uh, diversity in Stockton. What we have is, in the schools area, we have uh, groups of children who come from immigrant families into the area, and it's caused conflict in the schools because there's different cultures and different ways of doing things. What are some of the countries that are represented in the diversity? Well, some of the countries are uh, Russia, uh, Cambodia, China, Vietnam. Many of the uh, Asian uh, countries have uh, brought in some people into the area. So it's not only um, it's not only the Western culture, but it's the Eastern and the Mid Eastern and and the this mix. Um, why Stockton? Why have they chosen to settle there? Well, it's an agricultural community, and uh, oftentimes these people, that's their roots from their own cultures and their own past, and so they'll come into Stockton uh, because it's something that they might be familiar with. So what sort of um, conflict does this uh, diversity spark in the community? Well, oftentimes what we're seeing is kind of misunderstandings in the community and misunderstandings in the schools where uh, it might cause some violence with groups of people uh, because they kind of feel as though they're the minority and that they have to stand up for themselves. The immigrants are the minority. Yeah, oftentimes because there's such, especially in these, in the Asian communities, what we're seeing is that they're bringing perceptions of each other back from their home countries here to the United States. So when they're meeting another group of people who they may already have perceptions about, they deal with them in the same types of ways that they would have back home. They expect them to be the way their grandparents said uh, their grandparents were. Mm, oftentimes that's true. Can you give us some examples? Sure. Uh, one of the things that we see in the schools is the idea that uh, children are used to having space. They're used to 
being spatially oriented. And a lot of the Asian cultures, and certainly the Russian culture also, they hang out together. They're in groups together. And what we've seen is they kind of move groups, and they move in kind of territories. And sometimes when those territories cross, or people move into new territories, then that causes conflict. Well, when the conflict is there, um, how do you, as a mediator, see it? Well, uh, usually we hear it from an administrator of the schools program or someone in the community who has stepped up. Uh, we have a great relationship with the Stockton Police Department. One of the things that we uh, like to foster is the idea that they can just contact us and we can be available to them. So most of the time we get referrals from other sources. Well, are the disputes uh, fist fights or angry words or uh, weapons of violence or something else? Yeah, you know, I think in the past that was certainly the case, that it would come to fists, it would come to violence, it would come to even gunfire. And now there's, there's kind of a new way of thinking in the schools, and people are used to having conflict managers there to help them. How does the conflict manager help? What, what do they do? What we do uh, is we train the children in the school system and the administrators and the educators on ways of talking to people, allowing them to say what they're feeling so that they're able to express themselves in a way that's constructive instead of destructive. For example, how do you draw someone out to say what they're feeling when uh, they're furiously angry at somebody else? Mm. Well, you know, when you're furiously angry, what we like to do is kind of calm the atmosphere down. So we may go to a, another place where it's calmer, where there aren't others watching, because sometimes that allows others to be more angry or they may be showing their anger for others. And we take them to another place and then... Separately or together? Well, oftentimes uh, they're separate at first, but that this conflict resolution process brings them together, that they're face-to-face. -face. And the idea is to allow each individual the respect of not being interrupted, not being called names, and to allow them to say their story, to tell why they're upset, and tell how they got to that point and some of the things that they felt. Do you establish ground rules at the beginning? Absolutely, absolutely. The ground rules that we, that we establish are the idea of respect, and that means no name-calling, uh, no finger-pointing, you know, the physical types of respect. And then there's also, excuse me, this idea that uh, we're going to talk to each other respectfully, and we're going to deal with a process where the first thing you do is you talk to the mediators, and then the mediators kind of mediate the conversation between the two parties. In the presence of the, the uh, antagonistic parties. Yeah. Uh, let's go back to the ground rules. I, I find that interesting. Do you recite the ground rules and evoke a commitment or merely, merely recite them? How do you handle that? Well, what we do is we just come out and tell the people that there are some ground rules to this mediation process. The important things here are that we're being respectful to each other and that we're not interrupting each other. And then what we do is we ask them to buy into those things, to buy into those ground rules by acknowledging it in an affirmative manner. So we'll ask, can you agree to, to abide by those ground rules? And we wait for them to say yes, to acknowledge the idea that they can abide to it. Then we ask the other party if they're willing to abide by the ground rules. What that does is that affirmative buy-in allows you to come back to it later and if there is someone who's gotten angry enough to interrupt or maybe be a little disrespectful, we can say, well, earlier you agreed to honor the ground rules. Do you find that the uh, commitment to the ground rules uh, sticks and that people do abide by it? 
Really, we do, Barry. It's an amazing process because when people are sitting there face-to-face and they've got someone there who they feel is, is being helpful, they're really bought in. They're really into the process. And so they really understand the value of it. So we have the, we have the conflict. We have the, the uh, two parties of disagreement in the room. They've agreed to the ground rules. And then? Well, and then we allow them to tell their stories. That's the important thing, I think, through the beginning is to allow people to express themselves. We have kind of a metaphor of, of people when they get angry, their balloons get inflated and their, their balloons are full and they're about ready to burst and they might be becoming very angry. So what we want to do is kind of let some of the air out of the balloon and kind of let them relax, and let them feel like they can trust the process. That's, that's the most important thing is the idea that they can trust this process. Trust in the process. How do you do that? How do you deflate the balloon before it uh, pops on its own? Well, we teach in the mediation training that there's a number of skills that you can use. And one of the, the skills that the mediators use is what we call AVEX, which is an, uh, they're the first letters of all the words that are acknowledging, validating, empathizing, clarifying, and summarizing. So here we are again in our hypothetical conflict. Okay. And one person tells a story about... Uh, how wretched and despicable the other person is, who's deceiving to say, no, no, you're more wretched and you're more despicable. How do you deal with that? How do you um, acknowledge and, and validate that kind of circumstance? Well, it can be just as easy as looking over to the person and giving them eye contact, maybe a soothing hand, say so you'll get your chance to speak, or acknowledging the idea that they're frustrated and say to them, I see by your body language that you maybe have something to say or you're feeling a lot of emotions around this and then giving them the opportunity to speak. It's really important to balance in the mediation process the time that the people spend speaking so that they don't feel that they're just sitting there and having someone rail on them the entire time. They get the chance to, to say something that they feel too. Let's divide this at this point into two groups, okay. young students and older students and adults. I presume there's a difference. Between the students and the adults? In how you handle the mediation process. There is a difference. What we see when the children are younger is that when they come to the table, they're not going to understand a lot of the language, a lot of the emotions that we ask them to share with us. Uh, so what we do is we break that down into, into just kind of a basic type of, of uh, system or process where the children just, they just ask, you know, what did you want? Did you want? Let's say that there's two children who are fighting over a ball. And you ask the one, the, the little child mediators will ask one child, why did you want the ball? And they'll ask the other child, why did you want the ball? Well, how can we do this differently? That's the, one of the questions that we give them. They'll have it on a sheet, these questions, how can you do it differently? Or how can we resolve this? And it's really amazing to see these young children say, well, I guess we could share. That seems like something we could do. Or well, maybe I could play with the ball for a few minutes, and then they can play with the ball for a few minutes. We also have those types of resolutions on a piece of paper for the mediators to maybe offer if the children aren't able to think of it on their own. So when we deal with adults who have um, a more complex personal history from their life experience than would uh, uh, children disputing over a ball, how do you handle the, the mediation dispute at that point? Well, it's a little different. What we do is we kind of think of the idea that these people are dealing with an iceberg. 
the tip of the iceberg is the thing that has maybe brought them to the mediation process. And that little thing is the 10% that's above the waterline. Now, below the waterline is the 90% of the iceberg that is the perceptions of the parties and their assumptions and their, their values of what they're feeling and their needs in terms of all of the things that they're having a conflict around. The mediation process focuses on getting to those things that are underneath the iceberg. That way we can help people solve the thing, but help them find out kind of more about themselves and why these things got to the point where it was. Scott, I want you to explain how we get to that 90%, the, the part of the iceberg below the water. But I want to take a moment first and say that you're listening to Radio Curious, interviews with those we wonder about. My guest this week is Scott Spears, who is a trainer in the schools and a mediator in the community at the Stockton Mediation Center. I'm Barry Vogel. Scott, how do we get to that large part, uh, the part that creates the discordant connection uh, or the disputes among the people? That's a great question. What we do is we ask people open-ended questions. And those open-ended questions are intended to allow people to express their feelings. Give us an example of an open-ended question. Tell me more about that. What does that feel for you? Those types of things, as opposed to the, a closed-ended question, which would be, how many people were there? That's a closed-ended question. The answer is 14. There were 14 people there. You're not going to elicit more communication. If you ask an open-ended question that to address that same issue, then people are going to flow, and you're going to understand what they're saying. So to address that, how many people were there, tell us what the circumstances were around that. That's a more open-ended question, so people are going to be more willing to talk about it. Going back to AVEX, mm -hmm. um, we've acknowledged it after they have told us uh, the, what the problem is. Mm -hmm. And then A is for validating it? Well, A is acknowledging, and that's the idea of just acknowledging something that someone is saying. If you're speaking, I'm going to give you some eye contact. I'm going to nod my head. I'm going to make my little mm -hmm noises in the back of my throat. Now, validating is the idea of saying, I understand the emotion that you're giving. So if you're angry, I'll say, you seem angry. If you seem like you're frustrated, then it's just that easy. You say, you seem like you're frustrated. or This is a difficult situation for you. Or if I were you, I'd probably feel that way too? Well, that would be the idea of empathizing. I think empathizing can be, it's kind of a catch-22. If you say, if I were you, I would feel the same way, it might make the other party feel like, hmm, they're on their side. So it's a tight line you have to walk. Some of the things we say would be like, well, it's difficult to feel uncomfortable in your neighborhood because I think that's the type of thing that can be generalized for just about everybody in society. And then you clarify it. You very much clarify it. If there's a piece that you don't understand or you need to find out exactly which emotion someone is feeling, ask them. Ask them. So it seems as though you are feeling angry would be a good question to allow someone to say, mm, it's not anger, it's not anger, it's, it's frustration for me. And then your summary? What the summary does is it makes, it does all the other things. It comes back, it acknowledges, it validates, it empathizes, and it clarifies in one big piece so that everyone feels they've been heard and it really blows that balloon down and really gets people to relax. And then they get to say, you know what, thank you very much for, for hearing me, for hearing me say what I feel. What do you do when the parties don't speak a common language? 
Well, you know what we do is we use translators. And one of the things that we've seen in the schools is that the children are learning English and yet to be effective communicators, they may have to use their own primary language. We use mediators uh, in the, with the, or trainers, excuse me, translators with the adults who are having of different languages because sometimes those people aren't learning another language. They're not learning English because of their age or the idea that they're working. They don't have time for those types of things. So we use translators. So you translate from a native language to English to another native language. Yeah, it can become, uh, it's kind of an interesting process because you'll be speaking to uh, the parties and you'll want to be giving them the eye contact and the acknowledgement with your body, and yet the words you're using are coming from the translator, and so the translator is the one that's, who is speaking your feelings to the, to the parties. What do you find uh, gets lost in the translation? Well, you know, it's important for us to really have a good connection with the translators. And oftentimes, the translator, since they're a filter for the words that are coming from the parties, won't use the words that, were, that you hear in the emotional stuff. Um, when people are talking from their emotional side, they're saying, I'm angry, I'm frustrated, this has been difficult, you know, I'm sad, those types of emotions. And sometimes the translators won't admit those, won't tell us, they won't emote those. So what we do is we ask them to really focus on the emotional side so that we can get down to those things that are underneath the iceberg. So the translators are trained in the mediation skills as well. Yes, that's one of the things that we insist upon is that they go through the process so that they understand what the goals of the mediation process are. And if we feel as though we're not getting it, we can talk to them more about how to achieve that. And I also understand that within the school districts, uh, the janitors and the bus drivers um, are also sometimes trained in, in the mediation process because they see students in a circumstance where the teachers and administrators don't see them. They often do. It's, there's, there's conflict in many areas with the schools. and These people are they're seen as role models for the children. And sometimes they'll come to them, or like you were saying, they're in a circumstances where the teachers and the primary educators aren't around. To get them to buy into this mediation process really allows the kind of continuation of the idea that we're going to help you help yourself. We're going to help you learn about why it is you're acting this way or you're behaving this way and maybe see why the other children that you're involved with in the conflict are doing the same things. Do you find that people who have successfully had their conflicts mediated um, come in to the group and be part, be mediators themselves? Oh, yeah. You know, my boss my uh, at the mediation center there in San Joaquin County, Kathy Ewing, had been in a conflict herself, and this was about seven years ago. And she went to the mediation process with a neighbor, found out about it, turned into uh, you know, one of the finest mediators and trainers in the state. And we also see that right here in Stockton, the idea that people are willing to come to, after they see the value of the process, they're willing to come and be volunteers and give back what they got. So then how would you describe what conflict resolution is in terms of uh, past, present, or future? Well, that's a great question because what we see is in the litigative process, in the court process, the focus is on the past. The judge says, mm, back in the past, when this event happened, this person was right and that person was wrong 
very much about looking at the past and determining who was right and wrong, that judgment perspective. In the mediation process, there is no judging. The mediators are neutrals. Their goal is to help these people help themselves. So what the mediators do is they step back and they let these people talk and they let them talk about the past, but with a future perspective. What does the future look like? Okay, well, you've had a chance to, to be angry, so now tell us what the future looks like for you. Is a great question to ask someone so that they can say, well, you know, I want to get along with this person. They're my neighbor. They're a classmate. I don't want to have this stress in my life. And we talk about ways of resolving that. So when you have a boundary line dispute or a road easement dispute or a fence dispute, do you find that mediation will work? It very much does. It very much does. The idea of relationships is extremely important in the mediation process and in many of the conflict resolution processes. The preservation and the building of that relationship is one of our primary focuses. So when you're seeing neighbors who are conflicting about a fence line or a property line, to bring them together, to allow them to resolve it themselves, and allow them to create a solution that they're both willing to buy into is one of the important and valuable things that the process process brings. Well, you've been studying uh, uh, conflict resolution for the past three years in law school. Mm -hmm. This program that we're talking about and where you work is a whole different approach. How do you resolve the two in your own mind? Hmm. Well, I was fortunate enough to come into law school having already known about mediation in the process. And so my focus in law school was not necessarily the litigation and the stuff that would happen in court, my focus has been how do I bring that to the mediation process and how does that understanding of how the court systems and the legal systems affect people who are in conflict and want to deal with it a different way. The, re- the way I, I kind of bring the two in perspective is I say that the litigation process has value in many areas. In some areas where there hasn't been law created, there hasn't been uh, a set way of doing things the law and the judges can help create that. Uh, in other instances where there's been many years of, of involvement with the law, things are pretty much set, the mediation process steps in and says, well, let's see if we can't do it for what works best for us. So th- the way I resolve it is that there's some things that need the litigation process and there's some things that need an alternative way of seeing things. Scott, growing up here in Ukiah, how did you get into the mediation uh programs and ideas? Mm. Uh, I went to uh, Ukiah High School and had some problems myself. I was a precocious child. It might be a a nice way of saying it. And uh, I was thrown out of high school halfway through my junior year. So I really faced conflict, not just from a home perspective and my family perspective, but from school. And uh, after I started at South Valley from my work environment. Um, South Valley is a continuation high school for uh, high school dropouts or kick-out E's. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was much different back then. Now they've got their, their space up there on Dora. But back then it was, it was a trailer, and there was maybe 20 of us there. Um, and it was also an area where other people came who couldn't deal with conflict well, who didn't know how to communicate, uh, didn't know how to tell others what their needs were without being violent. And to be in that environment, I felt as though there must be a better way. There must be a better way. And I I carried that with me. 
throughout my life. And then, what sparked the change for you to realize that there must be a better way? Well, what sparked the change was kind of, I mean, it kind of felt it coming up inside me as I grew up in Ukiah. And I grew up with people who, who enjoyed each other and who were able to meet and, and say hello and have a relaxed atmosphere. I joined the Navy and went back east, and I kind of felt that that wasn't the way people were completely out there. I ended up taking a mediation course in, uh, in my environmental studies at UC Santa Barbara and said, wow, this is it. This is the way that people can do it when they're talked to, respected, and listened to. That's a much better way of resolving conflict. And your plans for the future are? My plans for the future are to stay in the uh, conflict resolution area for children. I'm creating uh, a business called the Conflict, the Children's Conflict Resolution Network, CCRN. And then also I plan to do environmental dispute resolution, which would involve bringing developers and environmental groups or community groups together to resolve conflict around the idea of growth. Well, Scott, I want to thank you for joining us on Radio Curious. And before we close, I want to ask you the question that I ask all of my guests at the end of an interview. And that is, could you tell us of an interesting book or two that you've read lately? Absolutely. There is um, a new book out called The Power of Mediation. And, uh, excuse me, I take that back. It's The Promise of Mediation. It's by Bush and Folger. And it's just a book that talks about the transformative ideals of mediation and the value that can be attained from going through these mediated processes. And I encourage everyone to check out their bookstore or their library and see if they can't find the promise of mediation. Before we close, I want to go back um, to one of the things that uh, I think is important to bring out, and that is um, the resolution of a conflict. Mm -hmm. Uh, who was the resolution for? Is it for the um, uh, participant or for those who are seeking the resolution? Mm. And how do you distinguish between the two? Yeah, well, the idea of resolution for us is it's not concrete. You know, we find that people can resolve things in many, many different ways. And we do it in our process. They can resolve it orally. They can resolve it with a written agreement. They can resolve it with a legally binding agreement. Or they can walk away just knowing that there's a different way of seeing things. Our ideal is that the mediator really isn't involved in the resolution process. It's for the parties. They choose what they want to get out of the process in terms of resolution. If they want to... to uh, do it in a way that meets their needs or they're willing to maybe be more accommodating for the needs of another, that's how they want to resolve it, then we feel as though that's the best way to resolve it. We do like to set in a, a, a loopback process so that when people find resolution and it doesn't quite work out like they hoped or they envisioned, then they can come back to the mediation process and try it again. Well, Scott Spears, thanks again for joining us on Radio Curious. Thanks, Barry. There are over 750 archives on our website, radiocurious.org, and I'm honored to tell you that Radio Curious is now part of the collection at the Library of Congress. We appreciate your cards, ideas, and letters, and do enjoy hearing from you. The email is curious at radiocurious.org. The postal address is 700 West Smith Street, Ukiah, California, 95482. The phone is 
621-5075. Ignacio Ayala is the assistant producer. I'm host and producer, Barry Vogel. Thank you for listening.